Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Jonathan, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited to have you here on the show today. I'm excited to talk about just the things that are in your book, uh, Rogue Waves, which we'll, we'll talk about and we'll get into. But before we get into that, I'm always curious about you know, how people get to where they are in life. So I'd love to hear more about your journey and how you got to this point in your professional career. It's a great question. Uh, so the last number of years, I, I've been the global futurist at HP and an advisor to the chairman at a company called Frost & Sullivan, which is one of the larger market intelligence firms in the world. Before that, I spent the better part of 20 years running contract R&D programs. I started a small software company, started a manufacturing firm. And in the process of that, I saw consistent trends, consistent ways that leaders mistook the future that they've experienced and that they think will happen versus the future that is much more likely to happen to them. And the result of this is oftentimes unnecessary pain, unnecessary failure. And on the flip side, an inability to capture potential success. And so that's really what the book's about is, is looking deeper at the future in front of you, looking at what you can know about it uh, versus what you think you know about it and getting serious about that process. When you take a look at something like COVID, you know, it's easy to say, ah, it was a surprise. You know, eight of the 10 largest companies in America failed to list it as a risk in their SEC filings. But the reality is if you talk to Larry Brilliant, uh, you talk to Bill Gates and the same meetings I was in with number of Fortune 100 CEOs who didn't register it as an SEC risk, we knew this was a growing threat. They were informed. We talked about the economic impact of this. So it wasn't just the fact that the facts were on the table. It was that they weren't able to register what it meant for their organizations. And it turns out that in a lot of cases, we as leaders assume you know, that the future will look like our past. And more importantly, we assume that our people have the ability to imagine, to exploit, uh, to prepare themselves, to position themselves for change. And the reality is in many cases they don't, or in many cases they have a partial skill set to do so. And that's really what the book's about, is how do you look more seriously at change? How do you, in a world that's getting more volatile, assume that you'll be disrupted and figure yeah. out how to turn that to your advantage when it happens? Gotcha. A lot of things to unpack there. And I think it's very interesting, you know, how you're talking about just like the future and the future is so uncertain, right? And it's, it's like, how do you position yourself? How do you create a system? How do you create patterns so you can adjust quickly so you can be resilient? I, I want to talk to you more about this, but before we get into this, uh, it, I'm kind of interested in your background because, you know, you got a degree in industrial design 
and um, you did some business management coursework at Stanford University. And so you have like this design and business strategy, like correlation. And then with me, like, so I, I did the the financial track, right? So I I got my undergrad in accounting and finance. I, I did my master's in accounting. I did my MBA. I, I worked in uh, public accounting, you know, so I tie strategy and finance together, right? So I, I think there's a correlation where you have strategy, but if you don't have strategy without like the financial, the economic side of it, then, you know, you just have a bunch of like fun marketing slogans or whatever. So with you, how do you see design and business strategy correlating? And, and how do you see like the experience with like industrial design and all these different things that you did in your career correlating to like the strategy work that you're talking about with companies? I think what you're getting to is this the point I was making, which is that most people, most teams don't have the full skill set they need to create a strategy that will be resilient to the future no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. Right? They they're able to create a strategy for a future that they assume will happen, but we all know that's very, very rarely the case. That said, I think there's a second point you made, which is that the future is uncertain. Well, how uncertain is it? What aspects of it are uncertain? What aspects of it aren't? right? If you dig a little deeper, it actually turns out that we can know a lot more than we imagine. And that brings me to thinking about my career as an industrial designer uh, and running product innovation programs. When I think about design, I think there are two or three different types of design. There's the truly strategic design, which is really what I do, looking at complex systems, looking at complex platforms and saying, okay, well, what are the criteria for success for this thing? How do we design and engineer that in a seamless way? Then there's the sort of the incremental design. What new button should we put on this? What new logo should we put on the Coca-Cola can? And then there's purely aesthetic design. What color pink should it be? And so I think when we think about design, there are those different levels and they're, they're relevant in different ways. What color pink should it be is very relevant. Maybe for today, you know, color trends are changing or whatever. That's important. Uh, but when you start looking very, very deep, you know, design, strategy, economics, they're all highly, highly interrelated things. And you can't really do one without the other. And almost all of my work over the last 25 years has been very tied to you know, sensitivity modeling, financial modeling, um, stock flow and types of analysis, node link types of analysis. And so I think they're all part of the same stew. There are different ways of looking at the future. And when I think about it, I think there are really five major skills that we need for our teams to have, for our teams to learn. The first is reality testing. So you're a finance guy, I'm a design guy, but neither of us really have the hard science background about how do you solve a problem when you don't even know what the problem is. Sure. And that's the next level down is is how do you use scientific method? And it turns out there are four types of knowledge finding. There's deductive thinking, which is a lot of what they teach you in business school. How do you break a thing down into mutually exclusive, completely exhaustive parts, and then solve for each of those things. But that assumes that you know what the problem is, that all the facts are true, and so on and so forth. The second is inductive thinking, thinking about what's the most likely outcome given what we know. The third is abductive thinking, saying, okay, well, you know, given what we, what we think we know, what's the most likely outcome? And this is very much what someone like Sherlock Holmes did, where, where it's, you know, he, he said, you know, no matter how crazy, you know, given all of the facts, one thing must be true. There's some, something right. like that. My, my point being that if we start assuming that some of our facts are wrong, right? If we start assuming that some of our assumptions are wrong, 
do our assessments still stay true? And I think that's a really useful way of starting to think about innovation. And then the last, which you probably know a bit about in your background and is very relevant to finance uh, and statistics is Bayesian modeling, right? How do we uh, figure out, given a complex set of information and likelihoods, what the range of possible outcomes is? And so there, there are these like different ways of looking at the world. And, and typically, all of us in our undergraduate training, at least, really get taught one. So you've got to look at that broad range of skills. The second thing we need to look at is how do you observe systems, right? So how do you, how do, you do that node link analysis? How do you do stock flow analysis? Some people have that training. How do you generate the range of possible futures? So this is very much a financial background, right? How do you do sensitivity analysis? And sure. really... And into my mind, how do you push it beyond the boundaries? So if we, if you look at December of 2019 and you take a look at AMC theaters, they said, Hey, we'll do better or worse by 6% next year. Right. Zoom. They probably said something like the same thing. The reality is AMC went bankrupt and Zoom had a banner year. You know, that range of possible futures, you need to be thinking about that because what you want to do is figure out how, how to uncouple yourself from the downsides. Right and how to maximize the probability of the upsides. And that's a thing that you learn a lot in things like mechanical engineering, right? How do you, how do, you do complex systems engineering and, and how do you keep systems from failing? Sure. But that's very different than the way that you might think about that kind of uncoupling is very different than the way you might think about in computer science uh, experiments and getting to a solution. You know, in computer sure. science and software, every day new things become possible that weren't possible before. I was making a piece of software and it only worked on one part of my computer. And then the next day, suddenly some new software came out and it was able to operate across 20 different computers. And so literally we had a 20 times increase in performance in a day. Mm-hmm. You know, in software, that kind of thing happens. And so you have to look at kind of a range of experiments Sure. And start looking at it as a portfolio, very much like a financial portfolio of like, where are the high growth, high risk experiments? How are, how do we make sure that we, you know, reliably deliver? And then uh, how do we make sure that we have what I call insurance experiments, the things that keep us from failing? And so sure. when we look at our teams, when we think about the future, we need to have all of these competencies. Otherwise, we don't have all the tools we need to exploit tomorrow and to rebalance ourselves if we get hit. Do you think organizations that run more experiments are typically more successful than those who run less experiments? Meaning that with, you know, this whole strategy process, you know, an organization may think, Hey, we're going to you know create these hypotheses and then we're going to run these experiments to test these hypotheses. And then along the way, we're going to make adjustments and that's how we're going to go execute. And then there's other companies that sit back, they do this analysis and they, they're really, really methodical and, and very prudent in their approach. So maybe they run less experiments, but they're more thought out. I mean, what's your thought process on that? I'm going to split the middle and say it really depends on the type of organization, the, the timeline of the risk, the knowability of the situation that you're designing for. Right. If you think about like a company like Shell Oil, sure, it can do experiments, but at the end of the day, it's buying oil rights for you know a, an oil field that might not monetize for 50 years. Right. Sure. It's a very, very different problem than uh, I'm making a website. And so I think you need to first figure out what type of problem are you looking at? What are the types of risks uh, that you're looking at? What's the timeline? And then the second piece is figuring out whether you know, you're, you're building a portfolio of experiments or whether you're trialing one. General Motors, like them or hate them, they spend a lot of money on R&D. Therefore, they're a pretty innovative company in theory. 
they spent the better part of a hundred years trialing the same experiment, right? How do I make a better car? How do I make a better car? How do they make a better car? Now they've made a car electric vehicle that goes 150,000 miles without a tune up. And I think it's like $40,000 after the tax rebate. My point is they got better and better and better and better and better, but they didn't innovate their business model. And so they're now in this really interesting problem. They're really in this really interesting situation where their dealers, their dealer network is built on selling someone a new car every three years and then having you know free cash flow from doing the maintenance on the cars. All of a sudden that's disappeared, that's exploded, that's disappeared because, because General Motors trialed an experiment instead of building a portfolio of businesses, building a portfolio of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe they should have been in heavy manufacturing. Maybe they should have been in windmills. Maybe they should have been, you know, in building large solar arrays. Maybe they should have been in hydroelectric, you know, who, who knows what else they should have been in, but being exclusively in cars was probably a very high risk decision for them. And I, I don't know where they're going to go next. Absolutely. So what do you mean by resilient? You know, so we, we talk about like this idea of resilient growth. What's your definition of resilient? And then what's the difference between resilient growth and then just normal growth? I think we need to start off by talking about rogue waves and, and what is a rogue wave. So when we look at the future, there are all of these trends that are kind of individually manageable, right? We know that structurally the U.S. is going to have growth problems because of demographics uh, moving forward. We know that taxation is going to have to increase to offset healthcare costs moving forward. We, we know all of these things. But what we often fail to do is recognize what happens when they overlap. When you think about COVID, for instance, One of the things people don't understand is the issue wasn't the pandemic. This isn't a radically more infectious disease than the last two respiratory pandemics that went across the world and were were contained relatively effectively in this century. The difference is between uh, the late 1990s and today, China put a population the size of Los Angeles into the wilderness and outside Wuhan. They added 16 high-speed rail lines across the country. And then they put in a population literally the size of the United States, 400 million people uh, into similar cities. And so we radically increased the, the, the population density. We radically increased the probability of the transfer of a disease from, from an animal population to a human population. And we accelerated the movement, right? The velocity around the country. And then uh, over the last decade between 2010 and 2019, the movement, the tourism out of China has increased 10 times. It's gone from an irrelevant tourism country to the largest tourism spender on the planet. And so what happened really wasn't that we had a new disease appear in Wuhan. We actually had uh, similar respiratory diseases appear in 2012. Uh, The issue is that all of these other things happened on top to turn what was a manageable situation into a rogue wave. And so When we talk about resilience, I think there are two things that we want to talk about, right? One is how do you prepare to ride the wave? How do you position yourself to be successful riding it when it hit, when when it rises? But second is if you missed the wave, if you weren't expecting something, how do you become resilient to the situation? How do you respond? Because at the end of the day, if everybody gets wet, if everybody capsizes and you can flip your kayak faster, you can still win the race. 
Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Is that where your ABC approach comes in when you talk about being successful and riding the wave? And can, can you talk about what ABC stands for? Yeah. So I talk about the, in the book, I talk about the ABCs of resilient growth. That stands for awareness, behavior, and culture change. If you want to build a more resilient organization, the first thing that needs to happen is that your, your people need to understand what's going on around you and why you need to change. Otherwise, well, why would they? Uh, the second is behavior change. We talked about sort of the what I call the rogue method earlier, like how, how do you do reality testing? How do you observe systems? How do you generate that range of futures? How do you uncouple threats and opportunities? And how do you build a portfolio of experiments? And in terms of behavior change, if your people know that there's a problem, they know the sky is falling, but they don't know how to take cover, sure. it doesn't matter. So you got to build those skills in your organization and lots of companies spend lots of money on learning and development. And what they discover is that it doesn't stick and it doesn't stick because you have a culture that runs opposite uh, the types of learning and development you're trying to encourage in the organization, right? If you incentivize short-term growth and you need long-term thinking, well, that long-term thinking isn't going to survive very long, is it? Sure. And so you need to build the hard and soft incentives and you need to build the processes into your organization that allow the culture that you want to flourish. Hmm. And so when we talk about simple ways you can do that in your organization, whether you're an individual manager, whether you're a large group manager, or whether you're the board and CEO. Gotcha. Let's back up real quick because you talk about training and education, which I believe is critical, you know, like building the skill sets and the capabilities of your your teams so you can actually execute on the strategy is so critical. So, you know, and you mentioned that a lot of training doesn't stick, a lot of education doesn't stick, and it's hard to build new skills. Why do you think that is? First, that's a really good question. I think there are a couple of reasons. The first is oftentimes learning and development organizations, if they're tied to human resources, particularly have one set of objectives where the operators in the company have a different set of objectives. If those aren't aligned, if they're not aligned at the C level, if they're not aligned at the board level, if they're not aligned in terms of comp, if they're not aligned in terms of uh, who gets ahead, you know, it's almost impossible for things to stick. The second is that I think we misunderstand the purpose of learning and development weekends, so on and so forth that the companies love to spend on. There are two things going on there. The first is we're going to try and train some people in some skills, I guess, three things. Second, we're going to try and assess who our high potential leaders are. Uh, and then the third, and I think this is really important and underappreciated in a lot of organizations, is that we're going to connect people. We're going to build those soft connections so that when the rogue wave hits, when we get capsized, uh, we know who to call and they'll pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. And I think that last piece is really where a lot of learning and development investment actually goes. And I think that it's undercounted for. Uh, in terms of linking skills, linking behavior to action, you know, I think it's, it's really those first two things, though. It's about incentives. It's about processes, right? If you don't have the incentives and if you don't encourage the processes through your organization, good luck. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I think 
you know, it's interesting because, you know, you, you talk about awareness, you know, like the first A, identifying these trends, being aware of what's coming and then being able to like execute is so critical because I, I think some organizations, I mean, they realize, hey, look, things are going to change. Maybe cryptocurrency is going to become a thing of the future and it's going to impact the way that we you know, handle transactions and commerce. You know, there's retail changes coming our way. There's ways that we use real estate, right? And we think about like office space and, and just working together in organizations. So they, they see these big trends, but sometimes don't you think they get like paralyzed by it? like all the optionality, all the information out there that it becomes difficult to execute. And then really that's what it comes down to. I think it does. Uh, and the reality is you can't prepare for every road wave right? Like uh, Jeff Bezos didn't wake up on Tuesday and pull out, you know, his, his COVID playbook out of the closet. Uh, but they did understand a couple of things, right? They understood where the levers in their organization were. They had a very good systemic model of which levers they could pull, which levers they could push, how hard, how fast, and keep the machine together. And it's really easy to look at what happened there and say, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's Amazon. They had too much money. They had the smart people and they were positioned well to survive. But my question is, could your organization take on 10 years of growth in 90 days if like just someone gave it to you? I doubt it. And so the question really to ask is, you know, are you prepared for the range of possible futures as opposed to any specific one? I think about it in two ways. The first is what they call the four foes of growth. So what are the financial threats, whether it's you know your financial strategy, assets, goodwill, amortization, liquidity, debt and interest, so on and so forth. And I do the same thing for your operations, for external risks and for strategic risks. And then I ask, you know, okay, well, what if the game changed? You know, and the reality is we all assume like that there's rules of, of the game that we're playing, but sometimes something like COVID upends the rules, right? And for Amazon, it was an opportunity. For AMC, it was a threat. In all cases, you know, there's a limited number of underlying structures that define games, that, that define the types of rules in a game. Um, so a risk uh, or an opportunity can move from a static risk to a dynamic risk, So, uh, or, or the other way around. So insurance was one of the biggest breakthroughs in the history of business. When statisticians made it possible for insurance to really become a thing, this funded the economies of, of the United Kingdom, this funded France right? Like this is the kind of thing that can fund governments. And what really happened uh, was they took dynamic risks. So an example in my life, I live in Sausalito, California. We have a drought out here. The fire risk is going up. There have been two grass fires down at the bottom of my hill. Um, so this thing that used to be a static risk, right? Like these massive forest fires uh, are becoming more dynamic, but because I've bought insurance, right? It costs me $199 a month or whatever it is. And, and my problem in terms of impact, at least, goes away. Well, there are a number of what I call risk switches. So it's that static to dynamic. Uh, risks might move from symmetric, they impact to everyone, to asymmetric, they only impact certain people. From synchronous to asynchronous, from permanent to temporary, and from general to specific or to particular. And so when you take a look at those four foes of growth and you start to say, okay, well, what happens if our assumptions about our environment move from risks being static to dynamic and so on and so forth, you end up with a really good model, not of the specific threats, right? You, you can't plan for a meteor hitting the earth, you know, uh, but you can plan for the types of threats, the range of threats 
they're likely to impact you and uh, have some kind of plan, or at least make sure that you have some kind of buffer to be resilient. to them. Sure. Absolutely. Yep. I think you, you explained that really well. So like in the book, like what's the, like the one thing where you're like, I really want readers to like get this main point because I see this over and over again. Right. And this is where I see the upside is the value prop. What, what is that? So I think there are, there are two things. One is harder and a little bit more abstract, which is that idea of the four foes of growth and, and this idea of risk switches that we talked about that in enterprise risk management, we talk about these types of things all the time, but they're also the key to innovation, right? That the insight that you could have insurance was once a new idea, right? It was a breakthrough on the scale of, of the growth of nations. The more of these risk switches you can flip, the more disruptive, the more valuable an innovation can be. Not just, not just a risk that happens to you, but your ability to disrupt others. Uh, when you take a look at Amazon, when you take a look at Uber, when you take a look at Facebook, what they did really was flip all of those risk switches simultaneously. And that's why they're worth what they are. And so you want to look at risk, threat, and opportunity is a range as two sides of the same coin. The second is that you probably want to know what game you're playing and what the rules are before you choose your strategy. You know, at the end of the day, uh, your poker face doesn't work at the roulette table. And sure. yet what you see again and again in life and in business is people choose the game, choose the rules, choose the strategy that worked before, assuming it'll work in a different place. And it often doesn't. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that's a great point. So let me ask you this, you know, with COVID and um, all the implications that it had on organizations worldwide, um, had you released your book before the pandemic, um, what do you believe companies could have done better while adjusting to this everything digital world? Well, I, I can talk to an extent about what happened at HP because we were prepared. We defined uh, pandemic as, as a systemic threat for the organization. We weren't prepared today specifically for COVID, but we had modeled it out. And what we saw was exactly what happened, which is that we would have opportunities in home equipment, right? Whether it's inkjet printers or computers. Uh, and we'd identified opportunities for a microfluidics technology that would help with healthcare diagnostics types of issues as well. The result of that is that, well, our competitors like Xerox, they had a 60% decrease or 69% by gap decrease in earnings per share. HP stayed almost completely stable. And this is, you know, an office equipment company over COVID. And so I think that you can prepare for the future. I think you can prepare for the worst and you can turn it to your benefit. You know, coming out of this situation, HP is in a much stronger capital position than many of its competitors. The printer market has uh, shrunk about nine and a half percent last year. And yet HP is well capitalized in a position to consolidate. So this is nothing but benefit. This is nothing but upside. Yeah, absolutely. With your experience as, as being an entrepreneur and working at these different organizations, how, do, how have you seen your professional life being hit with these rogue waves? And you know, how did you come about this ABC strategy to, to help mitigate that? I spent most of my career as a consultant. And the reality of being a consultant is you're constantly being, being hit by radical change. You're always you know, 12, 16 weeks out of being out of business, right? It's a constant renewal of customers. 
And so the way you think as a consultant is very much how do you become agile? How do you become resilient? Where do you invest in competencies that create stable cash flow? Uh, alternative uh, investments that create stability when the economy slows down. I wrote an excellent article in HBR with Dory Clark about exactly this. How do you plan your career? And it's really taking a lot of the strategies in the book and, and kind of wargaming strategies that we use in strategy, in corporate strategy, and applying them to your personal life. And I think it's pretty powerful. You know, in my own life, I've had a lot of ups. I've had a lot of downs. I've had million-dollar sure. years. I've had zero-dollar years. <laughs> you know, ne- negative zero-dollar years. Um, yeah. You know, I started a successful niche manufacturing company. I started a failed software company. So I've been there and I've done that. And uh you know, that's really what the book's about is like, how do you maximize the upside? How do you maximize the possibility of success? And and how do you minimize the downside? You know, when those things hit, you know, if you assume that you're going to be disrupted, you know, mm-hmm. it changes the way you think about your strategy. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is it possible to be, I guess, overly cautious or overly paranoid that you're going to be disrupted all the time? So then you're you're running around like crazy doing, you know, just random things, which can really impact, you know, an organization from like a focus standpoint. I, I think that is very much the case. You know, that this is part of building a, a, a muscle. It's it's like, you know, doing exercise every day. You know, this, this stuff doesn't work if you wake up every third Tuesday, you know, it, once a year and decide you're going to run a marathon. You know, it's, sure. it's kind of a constant exercise. It's a constant background muscle. Uh, one of the things I see when I do scenario exercises with clients is that they, they often over-rotate on, on boogeyman, right? They over-rotate on these things where there's no quantifiable certainty that a thing will happen, uh, that it won't happen. And people get really scared of these boogeymen, you know? And, and I think the key is really to understand that there's this bigger picture, right? Of I've got these financial, operational, external, and strategic realities, you know, that, that they can be impacted and I've got to figure out, okay, well, if they do get impacted, you know, how do I make sure that I can respond? Mm-hmm. That's really the opportunity. And, and like you said, for, for customers, you know, it's the same thing, right? Like how do I help my customers make their financial strategy more reliable? How do I help my customers be reliably more efficient? Uh, how do I help them deal with regulation? issues, right? How do I make sure that their R&D payoffs are more consistent, right? Like sure. when, once you start looking at the world in that way, and then how do I change the rules of the game, you know, so that that can happen, it's very doable. And, and I think it actually increases focus because you're, you're asking your organization, not just your C-suite, but everybody in your organization to understand the strategic context as opposed to, you know, the little lever that they pull. Sure. Absolutely. No, a lot of great points here. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting conversation because I think as organizations, you know, have woken up, you know, to, I mean, COVID-19 was, was a big wake up call for a lot of organizations where, you know, you're talking about this like digital revolution that's coming our way and, you know, how we have to change our, our business models and be more innovative. And, And there's a lot of chatter about that for years. Right. And then all of a sudden this happened and you're like, wow, okay, we do have to innovate. We're going to die. We do have to digitize because, you know, we don't have that, you know, that physical presence with our clients anymore. So I think, you know, the whole idea of recognizing and and having a process for identifying these rogue waves and then exercising that muscle so you could build this resilience within your organization is really critical. So a lot of great points, Jonathan, and and I really appreciate you sharing your perspective and more about your book um, today. So where can people get your book? Uh, it's available on Amazon and you can learn more about me at jonathanbrill.com. I'm constantly publishing in places like Forbes, HBR, Psychology Today. 
as well, but you'll always find that at my website. Excellent. So a lot of thought leadership out there. Thank you for sharing your insights today on the show, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. And I I wish you um, all the best as you go out there and you continue to make an impact in the world of business. Thanks so much, Steve. It's wonderful to meet you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best. 